Washington, D.C., January 2007. It's cold. Snow on the ground. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. Middle of the week, people are commuting. Everybody in that town works for the government somehow. And you have these bureaucrats that are traveling to their offices and everybody's in a hurry to get there on time. It's, it's actually 10 minutes till 8. And this is the peak time for the metro stations. Uh, most people there are traveling on the subway. You go in through the metro station, down through the escalator and get on your train and come up the escalator and go out and arrive at your office. It's L'Enfant subway station where there's... Uh, over a thousand people an hour go through in the morning rush hour time every day. The shoeshine lady is there. She's always there. She's against the back wall as you walk in through the double doors. And, and you always see her and she greets her regulars. And there's usually somebody in her chair. And she's made her living there for years because she's so personable. She knows her people and she shines their shoes regularly. She asks about their kids. She knows what's going on in their lives and they have conversations. She's the one that knows everything about what happens in this subway station. There's a line outside at the little desk where they sell lottery tickets the lotto has gotten up pretty big and people are standing in line because they want to get those magic numbers in because you never know if I could just spend two bucks on this ticket, maybe I'll, I'll be set for life. They're the only ones standing still in the whole place because they're waiting in line. Everybody else is moving at a frenzied pace as they come and go, come and go, come and go. And the shoeshine lady looks up and she notices a guy she's never seen before. And he immediately sticks out to her because unlike everybody else who's carrying a briefcase, he is carrying a violin case. A violin case in a subway station. That raises her suspicion. She watches him, ready to dial 911 if necessary. He's a young guy. He's a you know, 30-something white guy in jeans and a long sleeve t-shirt and a Washington Nationals cap pulled down, kind of hiding his face. And he walks over after looking around the place and he goes over by a side wall and he just stands there. Eventually puts his violin case on the ground and she watches as he bends down and clicks the buckles on that violin case and lifts the lid and reaches in, and he pulls out a $15 million Stradivarius violin, made by hand by the master in 1710. And he begins to tune it up. The guy in the cap is named Joshua Bell. He's generally regarded as the finest violinist on the planet today. He's in Washington to do a couple of concerts earlier in the week. And these are the kinds of concerts where people wear tuxedos and formal gowns, where people pay thousands of dollars to get their tickets. And every time Joshua Bell does a concert, it doesn't matter where it is. It could be at the Hollywood Bowl or it could be in a small, little, uh, intimate setting. Every time, every seat is sold. By the age of four, he took... 
rubber bands of various thicknesses and stretched them across the knobs of his dresser in his room so that he could play along with the classical music on his mother's radio. Seeing this, his parents said, let's get him violin lessons. By the age of 12, he was the principal violinist with the Philadelphia Orchestra. And today, most consider him the greatest violinist on the planet. He makes over $1,000 a minute when he holds that violin in his hands. And he took out the instrument. And he began to play one of the greatest pieces of classical music ever written for the violin. It's called Chacon by Johann Sebastian Bach. And here we have one of the finest musicians in the world playing one of the finest pieces of music ever written on one of the finest instruments ever made in the subway station. This was a planned event, but it was unannounced. There was extra security, plainclothes guys everywhere because they knew that as soon as the word got out that Joshua Bell was playing in the subway station, the crowds would come and they would overflow and they would spill out into the street. They didn't want anybody pushing and shoving. They didn't want to create a scene. And so the security guys stood by. The hidden camera was posted, one of those little spy cameras up in the corner to collect it all on video. And he took that $15 million violin and put it to his chin and he began to play. And it was this. And for 45 minutes, Joshua Bell played that amazing violin in that subway station and nobody stopped to listen. Not nobody. Of the 1,070 people that they saw come and go through the station during those 45 minutes, seven people stopped and listened for one minute. And a few people dropped some money in his case. $32.17. Over the course of those 45 minutes. And the interesting thing is that watching the video afterwards, they broke it down, the demographic groups and the whole thing, and studied it. And they saw that it didn't matter what the demographic group was. It didn't matter about race. It didn't matter about gender. It didn't matter about whether you were a young or old adult going through that place on that day. Everybody responded the same way. Virtually all of them ignored him. The only demographic exception was children. 
You know, it's only a few children going through at that time. People are commuting to work. But some people are holding their toddlers and their little ones by the hand and taking them to daycare on the way to work. And as that would happen, and you would see a small child come into the, to the plaza there. Um, the children all behaved the same way. Every one of them tugged at mom's hand or dad's hand and pulled toward the music. Every one of them wanting to stop and listen. And every single parent, without exception, tugged back and took the kid through without stopping. The only demographic that was even interested or even noticed were the little ones. Something truly remarkable was taking place, and with the exception of those little ones, nobody noticed. One lady at the end stood for 10 minutes and listened. She had been at his concert earlier that week. She went up and introduced herself and said, what the heck are you doing here? <laughs> Probably wish she hadn't spent the money on that ticket. <laughs> Nobody notices the master playing a masterpiece? How does that happen? I've been thinking about that as we, as we sort of fall headlong into the Christmas season this year. Some 2,000 years ago in a little town called Bethlehem, everybody was busy when the master entered the scene. And virtually nobody noticed. Most people were swept along with the busyness of their lives. We talked about this last week. It's understandable. If you had been there, if I had been there, chances are we wouldn't have noticed either. We would have been caught up in the, in the stress and the pressure of the day. We would have been trying to deal with the taxation and the census and finding a place to stay and all of that kind of stuff. Everybody was under pressure. Everybody was in a hurry and nobody noticed. They were just swept up in the whole thing and they were swept right past that young family and they were swept right past that manger and they were swept right past the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They were distracted by important things when the king of kings made his appearance. And therefore, they missed him. And I started thinking about this situation with Joshua Bell, and I thought, what would have happened if they had done it differently? What would have happened if they had put a marquee out front that said, Joshua Bell appearing for free, 8 a.m.? What would have happened if they had built a stage in there and, and fixed the spotlight and shown it on him and, and put the correct kind of microphone and speaker system out there so that everybody could hear? Do you think it might have gone differently? See, I feel like my responsibility this Christmas as we get into this sermon series called Christmas Beyond the Chaos is to somehow in the busyness of our current lives to build the stage and shine the spotlight. I want to make sure we don't miss the master this Christmas. Last week, we looked briefly at the story of the shepherds who, you know, were busy too, and they were out in the fields and they were keeping watch over their flocks by night and their lives got interrupted. We find their story in Luke chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, take it out. Open to the Gospel of Luke, third book of the New Testament, and go to the second chapter. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one, just uh, let us know, and we'll be happy to give you one. 
Um, But if you didn't bring one today, just listen along. I'll read it to you. And in Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, this story begins to unfold for these shepherds. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. We'll just stop there. Because it's a familiar story, we even visited it last week in the message. But I I wonder if those shepherds, at the time when the sky opened up and the angels came and began to proclaim to them this message. I wonder if any of the shepherds began to scratch his head and say, is this what we heard about? I wonder if any of them had enough education in the scriptures to know that some 700 years before there had been a great prophet by the name of Isaiah who had written about this very night and said what would happen and given the details And I wonder if it struck them to say, I wonder if that's what these angels are talking about. Could this be the one that Isaiah wrote about? And just as the shepherds were told that a Savior had been born for them, Isaiah had said the same thing 700 years before. So let's look at it. Isaiah chapter 9. It's your Old Testament. If you flip back, it's two-thirds of the way through your Old Testament, roughly. And go to Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. And again, around Christmas time, what you can expect around here is the same thing you get every week, which is a message from the Word of God. And if we're going to stick with the Word of God and we're going to talk about Christmas, you are going to come across verses with which you are familiar. You're going to hear things you've heard before. And so that's a part of my challenge because what I really want to do is help you to somehow get past the poetry of it and the fact that you've heard it before and you know the story. And I want you to maybe see it from a perspective that you haven't seen it before, but make sure that that perspective remains biblical. So here we are in Isaiah chapter 9, a familiar passage in verse 6, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. This is where... We take a deep breath and slow down and focus the spotlight. We need to see the Jesus that is described in the beautiful poetic language that we've heard so many times and read on so many Christmas cards. Because Jesus has... Many different names and many different titles that are given to him in Scripture, depending on where you read, you can find them uh, dozens and dozens of 
uh, references to Jesus. But today I want to focus not on his names, but on a few of his titles. If you, if you walk out that door and cross the hall, you'll see another door that leads to an office. That's my office. And, and on that office, on the outside of the wall, right outside the door, there is a plaque that says, Doug Spriggs, Senior Pastor. A name and a title. Uh, this is what we call him, and this is what he does. And, and Jesus is described in the same way for us in Scripture. A name is what you call people. A title refers to who he is, what he does, what he's about. And so Isaiah gives us four titles here. Your English translation calls them names, but they're not really names. Look at Isaiah 9 verse 6 again. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The word name there, the Hebrew word for name there, doesn't usually refer to a person's uh, uh, name as we think of it, but more to his reputation. It's not just uh, what we call him, but it's who he is. It's what he's known for. So maybe a better translation of this passage would be, and he will be known as wonderful counselor, mighty God, and so forth. So what is he known for? This, this one who will be born, this one who will lie in a manger, this one who will set the people free from their sin, the one who has been given to all the people, the one whom the angels proclaim as good news and good tidings, glad tidings for all the people, because unto you a son is born. Well, first of all, he's a wonderful counselor. We're going to look at two of these titles this week, and we'll come back and visit the other two next week, but let's, let's just zoom the microscope in a little bit and get a clear look. He's a wonderful counselor. So, so this is audience participation. Raise your hand if you know someone uh, who has been in counseling at some point. Okay? All right. Raise your hand if you know someone who's in counseling right now. Okay? Raise your hand if you know someone who ought to be in counseling. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> You're right. You know why I knew that everybody would raise their hand there at the end? Because we all need a counselor. That, there are no exceptions to this. There is nobody who alone possesses enough wisdom, enough perspective, enough insight, enough moral character to run their lives according to God's plan without the counsel of someone. We all need counsel. And uh, the fact that we all need counsel is pretty obvious from the counseling industry in our culture today. In fact, um, it's a huge industry. It's a growing industry. Uh, I looked it up. There, there are these uh, online uh, sites that tell college students what to study in college based on what careers will be good for them. And the counseling industry is always right at the top because people will always need counselors. They say it's a recession-proof industry because the harder the economy gets, the more people need counseling, right? So it's a $33 billion a year industry. 
Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about the books that are sold, the self-help books. I'm not talking about the radio and television programs and the call-in shows and all that kind of stuff. I am simply talking about people who make an appointment and sit down in a counselor's office and talk for 45 minutes and, and share their feelings and get therapy to the tune of $33 billion a year. I'm also not including informal, non-professional counseling, which is what most counseling is. Most of us get our counsel across a cup of coffee from a friend, right? Which is an interesting thing. It's, it's I'm, uh, you know, could be good or bad, right? But the interesting thing about it is when you go to your peers for counseling, they're as messed up as you are, <laughs> Right? Right? I always found this to be interesting when I was in youth ministry 100 years ago, that, that teenagers need lots of counsel, right? Especially teenage girls. Teenage boys, they say things to each other like, hey, want to go swimming? Right? That's about as deep as it gets. But teenage girls, they talk to each other, right? And so if you're, a, if you're an eighth grade girl and something's going on and your life is falling apart, who are you most likely to get counsel from? Your parents, your teachers, professional counselors, pastors, your friends, and they're as clueless as you are, right? And, and, and if we are looking to our peers for extreme wisdom, we're probably going to be disappointed because if they were that wise, they probably wouldn't be our friends, right? So... So, but there is that whole side to counseling, and I'm also not talking about pastoral counseling, which takes place within the church, which is uh, probably the largest growing segment of counseling today. Um, it doesn't include things like life coaches, which are the new popular thing uh, and very expensive. It doesn't talk about consultants. We're just talking about people who go into a counselor's office and have their 45-minute session, write a check for 150 bucks, and go on their way. The bottom line is this, from time to time, we all need counsel. Where are you going to get your counsel? Are we going to get it from our friends? Are we going to see a professional psychiatrist or psychologist or somebody like that on a regular basis? Because because to the tune of somewhere in the neighborhood of 60 million Americans, we are in counseling on a weekly basis. So um, that's happening. We are really taking this counseling thing as far as we can. We are revisiting our childhood traumas. We are figuring out who to blame for our stuff. We are getting labels for our problems. We're learning to deal with confused egos and superegos. We are getting in touch with our inner children. We're getting career counseling. We are getting marriage counseling. We are getting school guidance counseling. We're getting grief counseling, substance abuse counseling, anger management counseling. We're, we're, going, we're doing all of it as a nation. You name the problem and I will direct you to a counselor who will be happy to listen to you talk about that problem 45 minutes a week for 150 bucks. Now listen, I am not anti-counseling. In fact, I'll bet I spend 40% of my week doing counseling every week. It's what I do. It's what I believe in. 
But I will say that too many of us have been getting bad counsel from all the wrong places. And that's of concern. We will try anything to feel better. And one of the problems with most of today's counseling philosophy is that the main goal is to get someone to feel better. And it's nice to feel better. But listen, if you feel better without getting better, you're actually getting worse. Does that make sense? And so we are seeing psychologists, we are popping pills, we are going to hypnotists, we are having our palms read, we are calling the psychic hotline, we're doing all of that kind of stuff, but most of it is not changing our lives for the better. I know this from experience because I sit down with hurting people all the time and very often someone will say to me, yeah, I've been in counseling for the last three or four years and say, really, how's that going? Oh, it's great. I go every Wednesday after work and and it's a 45-minute session and every time I leave, I feel better. Like just, just it's cathartic to get this off your chest. And I say, that's awesome. Uh, have the problems gone away? Have you gotten past the things that you went in for? And they say, oh no, but every Wednesday, I feel better when I leave. Getting it off your chest, so helpful. And that's usually when I call timeout and say, don't take this the wrong way, but I have some advice for you. Buy a dog. <laughs> Dogs are great for this. They will listen to you. They do not judge you. And on a cold day, they will lay on your feet while you talk and keep you warm. And they don't cost 150 bucks an hour. God knows we need wisdom and insightful counsel. That is part of the reason that Jesus was sent to be our wonderful counselor. See, we all understand, I hope we understand, I, I hope we as pastors and the body of Christ have done a good enough job of trying to let people know what Christmas is about, that we understand that Jesus came to earth so that he could save us from our sin and offer us eternal life. Amen? We know that. But what we sometimes forget is that he didn't just come to give us everlasting life. The scripture says he came to give us abundant life. And for that, we need a counselor. And so he says, I'm the counselor. Because here's the thing about Jesus, and this may comfort you or it may terrify you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He could see your heart he knows the whole deal. He understands it. He created you. He's the ultimate counselor. And by the way, he has given us the ultimate guidebook. He hasn't left us to just sort of guess at some subjective view of what he might think or what he might tell us. We, we're not left to just go, you know, I feel the Lord leading me to, or I heard the voice of the Lord telling me to. While he may work in us subjectively, he removes all doubt in his word when he says, I am giving you a word that never changes and is eternal and is always right. So he gives us his word and he's the ultimate counselor. But too many Christians... We'll go to Barnes and Noble, well, go on Amazon.com and buy a self-help book and read it cover to cover while their Bible gathers dust on the shelf. 
If you want good advice, read the Sermon on the Mount. There's more there for practical living than you could digest in a lifetime. Hebrews chapter 4 talks about the power and the value of the Word of God. It's in the back of your New Testament. Um, Not all the way to the back, but close. Go to Hebrews, and we're going to look at chapter 4 together. I'll give you a second to get there. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to begin in verse 12. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. Therefore, since we have a great high priest, Jesus who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need." Jesus knows you because he's God and he sees your heart. But he knows what it's like to be you because he became human and lived 30 plus years on this earth experiencing humanity. So what have you been through? He's been through it. Have you had heartache? He's been through it. Have you felt physical pain? He's been through it. And you know what it's like to be betrayed and deserted by the people that you care about the most? He's been there and done that. Have you undergone intense seasons of temptation? So has he. He knows what it's like. He is our high priest. And as our high priest, he sympathizes with us and offers us an invitation to the throne of grace where we can receive help when we are in need. And how does he do it? It says, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And anybody who has any extensive experience reading the Bible knows it's true. Haven't you seen this happen in your own life? That you open and you're reading a passage. Maybe there's a time where you're going through something specific and you just happen to be reading along in in the passage and you see God speaking to the very issue that you're dealing with. Or you read a verse and you go, I've read this verse 50 times, but now I see in it something I've never seen before because now I'm a different person than I've ever been before because now I'm going through something I've never gone through before. And the word of God is alive. And and you know what else? It pierces. It pierces. It gets down deep. The one who knows your heart, the one who sees you, he plunges the word into our lives all the way down to the deepest parts of who we are, and he begins to transform us with his word. Now, if you just turn a few pages back to the left, you'll come to the book of 2 Timothy. It's just four or five pages left. 2 Timothy chapter 3, also a well-known passage. We're going to pick it up in verse 16. 
speaking of the Bible, all scripture is inspired by God. That means breathed out of God's nostrils. All scripture is inspired by God. It came forth from him and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In other words, God wants to make us mature. He wants to build us up into the version of ourself he had in mind when he created us. And how does he do it? Through scripture. It's inspired by him, sent forth by him, and it's done, and it, and it, it serves a purpose. The purpose is teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. I mean, the word of God teaches us because part of the counsel that we need is not just wisdom, but knowledge. There are some things we don't know, and we don't know what we don't know, but God knows. And so he speaks to us the things that we need to know. And there are times when the word of God will give a nuance or a teaching, a principle, if you will, that changes our perspective on everything. And that relationship that we're struggling in so deeply, we come to see it in a completely different way. And God teaches us from his word the principle that needs to be applied so that we can live differently. It's also good for reproof. Now, we don't like reproof. Most of us do not like to get slapped up the side of the head and told we're messing up. But sometimes we need it. Sometimes we need it. And, and the word of God doesn't pull punches. The word of God doesn't hold back. The word of God is ready to speak to us about the things that we would rather not talk about. And so many times, what we really need is to be told, you are wrong. You're doing the wrong thing. You need to do something else. And if we would just trust God and take him at his word and let him reprove us with his word, it would change our lives. Or we can resist it and not be reprovable. It says it's good for correction. I think correction and reproof are a little bit different. Uh, uh, reproof has to do with uh, conviction of sin. I think correction has to do with, with um, adjustment of our course. The scripture says that man makes his plans, but God directs his steps. Sometimes there's a little course correction that is needed. A lot of times it's not uh, an intentional diving into sin. It's a, it's a misunderstanding of something or just a slight movement in the wrong direction. And God comes along and he just bumps us back into the right path and he'll do it with his word. A lot of times he wants to speak to us about his will and he has a specific will for our lives in a given situation and he'll use his word to correct us and put us in the right path. And for training in righteousness, this is how we become mature. His, his word is food for us. It builds us into mature people. The, the word of God is infinitely valuable as a counseling tool. And yet, we're in such a hurry that most of us don't take time to stop and notice the concert of wisdom that is pouring forth from this book if we would just give it some attention. You know, God, he invites us into a relationship and it's a two-way street. It's like a dialogue between us and God. He calls us to pray and we're supposed to pour out our hearts to him. We're supposed to go to the throne room of grace and pour out our hearts in times of need. 
And he responds to us and speaks to us. And he's God. He could speak to us in a thousand different ways. But the one, day, one way he guarantees he will speak to us is through the counsel of his word. He's a wonderful, wonderful counselor. The Bible is life-changing. We need to read it. The Bible is life-changing. We need to study it. The Bible is life-changing. We need to put it into practice. Now, I'm not saying you don't need any human counselors. But your human counsel should be biblical. You need the principles of Scripture way more than you need the principles of popular psychology. I'm not saying that there's nothing good to be learned from a psychologist, psychiatrist, counselor of any kind. That's not what I'm saying. Here's what I'm saying. If any human being is guiding us in a way that is contrary to God's word, God's word is right and that person is wrong. I'm saying if any human being is, is striving to make us feel better at the expense of becoming better, then we've missed the point and we need to get back to God's word. So find a biblical counselor. Find, find somebody who, who is deeply rooted in the principles of God's word who will talk to you and not be afraid to reprove you, who will not be afraid to correct you, will not be afraid to encourage you from the word of God and teach you the principles of scripture and hold you accountable to live them out. Because it's all in there. It's the word of God. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Don't miss him in the busyness of your life. But it goes on. It doesn't just give him the title wonderful counselor. It gives him the title mighty God. And I think this is important to at least touch on for a moment at this time of year because as we look at those nativity scenes, we could easily be confused into seeing Jesus just as the little helpless looking baby lying in a manger. And forget that the baby in a manger is the king of kings and lord of lords. It, it is so popular these days to see Jesus as our buddy. To see Jesus as our best friend. To think of him primarily as our brother. All of those things are biblical. All of those things are true. There's not a thing in the world wrong with them. But when we swing the pendulum so far that we we see Jesus just as our chum. And, and we have a... We have a bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. And we get the idea that somehow I ought to be the pilot and he just coming along for the ride. We have got it confused. We need to remember that this baby in a manger, this best friend, this brother who is a joint heir with us called Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the one who spoke a word and created everything. He is the mighty God, the one and only mighty God. And it seems like some of us have lost sight of that and how awesome God is because we think, you know, um, chocolate chip ice cream is awesome, Guys, if chocolate chip ice cream is awesome, what's the word we can use for God? Like, what's the word for God? We have so cheapened our language, our even way of discussing things, that we have, we have forgotten that there is a difference between that which is truly awesome and that which we simply enjoy. God is awesome. 
He is sublime. He is overarching. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is all-encompassing. He is all-able. He is ready. He is strong. He, he guides armies. He controls kings. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And everyone and everything answers to Him. He is the mighty God. And we can't lose sight of that. But we do. In our culture today, it is so popular to, to sort of talk about a version of God that's different than the one in the Bible. <laughs> you know? How many times have you heard somebody say, well, you know, my God would never judge someone for their behavior, or, or the God that I worship would never say that someone is wrong just for behaving in the way that they think they ought to behave. Listen, if that's true of your God, your God begins with a small g, not a large g. Your God is not the God who created man in his image. Your God is the one who was created in the image of man. So we have to understand that we don't get to build a God the way we want him to be and then let him be our little elf on the shelf. God is God. He answers to no one. He is sovereign. He is in control. And you know what the scripture says? He is righteous and he is just. We just read that in Hebrews chapter, chapter uh, uh, 4, verse 16. He's righteous and he is just. So you can redefine him if you want. You, you could just throw out the real God and replace him with a God who has no standards for human behavior. But a God like that, he'll be much less offensive. You'll get in way less trouble at parties with a God like that. But if that's your God, your God is not the real God. He's a made-up God who would rather have everyone like him than to do what's best for people. But the God of the Bible is bigger than that. If you're not comfortable with the fact that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. Just throw him out. Create a little g-god. Create the kind of God who says all roads lead to heaven and it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That's fine. You can create that God in your own image. Just understand he's a God with a little g. He's not the God with the big g. And you may create a God like that, but a God, and a God like that is much less abrasive. A God like that is much easier to handle. But that is not the real God. You're living in a fantasy. Jesus is the one and only mighty God. He doesn't change for us. He changes us. Right. I know that the Jesus in the nativity scenes is small. I know that he seems uh, relatively helpless. But let's never forget that the little infant in the manger is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who sits on the throne and all the inhabitants of earth and heaven bow in his presence. Only when we understand how mighty Jesus is can we appreciate the magnitude of Christmas. A God that great, the one and only true God left the throne of heaven for the manger of Bethlehem and ultimately the cross of Calvary. Why? Because he loves you that much. And if we don't understand how great he is, we miss the point. Guys, that's what Christmas is all about. 
He became human so that he could know you and become one with you and save you from your sin. That's how much he loves you. Don't miss Jesus in the busyness of the Christmas rush. Stop. Look. Listen to the God who actually is. He came because he loves you that much. I know you're busy, but the God of the universe left heaven for you. It's time to slow down. It's time to pay attention. You're walking right through the plaza while the master is playing and you're missing it. And God says to us, I am a mighty God. I am a wonderful counselor and I offer myself to you. Stop. Sit at my feet and experience me this Christmas. Let's stand together.